Good morning. Before we uh, get into our passage this morning, I have two or three things I want to talk with you about. Uh, the first is some uh, sad news. Um, word is starting to get around, so I wanted to uh, make an official announcement. I wanted you to hear it from me. But uh, this uh, summer, Pat and Jana Blewett are going to be leaving us. Pat, who is our Christian education director, just did the, the baby dedication, um, has accepted a position as the Dean of Continuing Education at Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. He's also going to be an associate pro- uh, professor there. This is something that uh, Pat has been talking about. We've been talking about this specific opportunity for quite some time. And as long as I've known Pat, it has been his long-range, long-term desire to, to minister in a university context. So this is no surprise. We will miss them greatly when they go. But I just wanted uh, to, to let you all know, because word is going to start getting around, and we uh, didn't want anybody taken by surprise. The other, uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is this is the last uh, Sunday that we've got the Mannings with us. They're going to be taken off to head back for the Middle East. So I wanted to steal a little bit of time just to pray with them as they go. Come on up, guys. They are still in need of some uh, financial support. They've got enough that we're confident to send them on the, back to the field. But if God has been laying it on your heart, we would encourage you to join their support team. But let's just pray for them together as they head out. Lord, we uh, don't easily give them up. We have just enjoyed the fellowship of your spirit. We've enjoyed their ministry among us, as Tom has has uh, operated on staff here at home for the time they've been here. Just uh, We don't give up the uh, access to them and, and our relationship with them easily. But we trust you. We trust that you are good, that your design for them is good, that you will use them powerfully for your kingdom and your glory. Lord, we uh, pray for them as they go out, for the filling of your spirit, for wisdom, for... Uh, insight into the to the needs of the people they're ministering to. We pray for them as they uh, continue to adjust and, and learn a new culture and learn to, to express your love, your gospel in that culture. We pray for their family as they feel the uh, separation more acutely than any of us. Just give them courage. May their heartache turn to prayers, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of worship, prayers, petitions on behalf of, of this family. Lord, do the same for us as we think of them, as we miss them. Cause us to pray for them. We want to see your power released in their lives. We pray this knowing that we are walking in line with what you want, that our prayer is in line with what your design is. And so with that confidence, we send them out from us. In your name we pray. Amen. I also wanted to uh, just thank all of you for your prayers and your encouragement as I've been recovering from uh, back surgery. I honestly, I can't tell you how much that has meant to me, your, your prayers and encouragement. I am still recovering. Uh, the doctor uh, told me when I had the surgery that I would walk the day after the surgery, and I had this image of myself walking, you know, kind of down the road happy, and he had this image of me doing this down the hall, so we've had a different agenda, he and I, 
uh, I uh, was sitting home, you know, for three weeks and thought, man, I'm ready. So I came back to work last Monday by about 2.30 in the afternoon. I was so absolutely thrashed. Every inch of my body ached. So I went home and went to bed, and I've just kind of worked off and on this week. I have virtually no stamina. So if as I'm teaching this morning I get tired, I'll just join the rest of you in a nap. Just talk among yourselves for uh, ten minutes or so, and I'll wake up and we'll get back on with the passage. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. A couple weeks ago, I bought a lottery ticket. Chance to win $30 million. Now, this was uh, right after Becky and I spent a couple days designing a budget for 1996. <laughs> trying to figure out how we're going to pay off two surgeries and some other debts we incurred in 95. And we uh, came up with, I think, a realistic plan. It had nothing to do with the lottery ticket. Uh, a plan that was going to require some discipline, some restraint. Uh, it was going to require that we not run into any major financial disasters in 96. But see, I don't like that budgeting process. I don't like the way I feel so vulnerable when I'm looking at, at, at the limitations. I don't like giving up my lusts, my desires for a, a new car or improvements on my home or a great vacation. So I bought a lottery ticket. You know, here's God's chance to take care of all that. You know, $30 million would take care of all my insecurity. It would sate all of my lusts. It would insulate me from all harm. So that Saturday night, uh, at the appropriate time, I turned to the appropriate station and waited for them to read off my numbers. And not one of my numbers came up. Zip! You know, my kids had a good laugh at the silliness of the whole thing, at the foolishness of wasting a dollar on a lottery ticket. And it was in fun. But i got to tell you, there was a tinge of real disappointment. As silly as we, I mean, as much fun as we were making of it, there was a real disappointment. There was a real sense that, boy, that money could have made me secure. That could have taken care of my problems. That could have made me happy. Now, why didn't God let me win? Because he loves me. Is it that he doesn't want me to be secure? No. Is it that he doesn't want me to be happy? Exactly the opposite is true. He really wants me to be secure. He really wants me to be happy. And he knows for a fact that there is no amount of money that can make me secure or make me happy. See, it isn't that God wants different things for my life than I want. It's just that what he, he wants what I need more than I even want it. See, that's why he tells us the truth. That's why last week in the passage that David taught, God said, happy, blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then right after he says, woe to the rich, because that's all you get. You see, Jesus knows how hard it is for us to really believe that money won't make us happy. So he tells us flat out, it won't. That's why he tells us that that, that the poor are better off. Because it's easier for them to focus on the things that life is really about. The kingdom of heaven on God and relationships. That's why he says, woe to you rich. Because when we have a lot of money or we have the potential to make a lot of money, it is so hard to believe the truth that that's not going to make us happy. He says, woe to you rich. 
Because that's all you get, and it's empty. It doesn't satisfy. Woe to you, rich. That's, you have it all, but that's all that you have. You see, Jesus is telling us the truth. He's been saying some radical things, some things that are hard to believe. Some things that just don't immediately make sense. He says, you're better off if you're poor. You have a better shot at finding happiness. But you don't believe that. We don't believe that. We spend our lives trying to make money and get things. Jesus says, better, you're better off if you weep. If you let the hard things of life really get to you and break your heart. See, you're closer to, to the deeper happiness of sharing real life with real people. But we don't believe that. We spend our time avoiding pain, avoiding confrontation and honesty in relationships. Jesus said, you're better off if people hate you for being a Christian. That it's worth it to be unpopular with people because you're popular with God. And that's going to touch your your deepest needs, your deepest longings for for belonging and, and security. But again, we don't believe it. We become furious when people don't like us. We resent it. We want to change society so people will have to like us. We miss out on just the sheer peace and joy of enjoying God's delight in us, sitting in His lap, letting Him love us. Jesus said that it is best that we should love the people who mistreat us, that we should be nice to the people who rip us off, we should be kind to the ungrateful. Again, we don't believe it. We go ballistic if our wives just look at us wrong. We resent it. We're not going to take any guff off of anybody because it feels so diminishing. See, the problem is we simply don't believe what Jesus has said. And this is the key. This is where it all comes down to. What we're talking about here is faith. That's what our passage is about. The answer to the question, do we really believe Jesus or not? See, and that answer is demonstrated in our actions, in the way we live. In fact, that our behavior, that our lives reflect that we don't really believe Him leads to, to disaster in our lives, in our marriages, and in our families. Horrible consequences. Again, the key is believing what God says, what Jesus says. Key is trusting Him enough that we listen and that we believe. But why don't we? Why don't we really believe this stuff? For one, it doesn't seem right. It, it's not logical. But I think the bigger reason is that we fear that God is just using us. Again, that His goals for our lives are not our goals. They're different. Well, in a sense, they are. But in a larger sense, they are not. They're the same. See, we may want wealth. And Jesus may not want that for us. But why do we want it? Well, usually, again, it's because we want to be secure. We want to be satisfied. We want to feel fulfillment. We want to be at at peace. And these are things that Jesus very much wants for us. 
It's just that he is smart enough to know that no amount of money or wealth will give that to us. If it would, he would give it to us. But it won't. See, his desire is not to give us the illusions of happiness, the illusions of peace, the illusions of satisfaction that the world offers. He wants to give us the substance, not the shadows. He wants to give us the reality. He wants us to find these things where they really are in Him. He gives us peace and satisfaction. And the issue for us is recognizing what we are really after, what we really need in this life, and then recognizing how God provides that in Christ. Again, the issue is trust. Who do we trust? Him or us? Who leads? Him or us? Who is our teacher? Him or us? Again, that's what our passage is about. What we have in in this passage is a whole string of of parables and stories and sayings, what the uh, in Hebrew is called karats. It's a string of beads. It's a it's a style of teaching that Jesus used a lot, a Jewish style that, that basically strings a bunch of stories or sayings together, and it leaves, he leaves it to the student to discover what they all have in common. Well, what ours have in common, we'll see by the end, is they have to do with listening to him, being honest with ourselves, and trusting him. Let's start with uh, verse 37. It says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, this is really the end of the last section. Section about being like God, the last couple verses just above this in the paragraph, end with uh, instructions to be like our Father, to be like God. If you remember last week, David talked about how beautiful Jesus is. Not in his physical appearance, but in his spirit, in his character. And then he told us that, that these instructions that Jesus is giving us are intended to make us beautiful, to make us like Him, to be beautiful like the Father. Well, I think this is somewhat of a summary of that, really bringing it all together into a single concept, how we act like our spiritual Father, how we are beautiful like He is. But this is also, I think, one of the most abused sections of Scripture. The conservatives tend to ignore it. Liberals tend to misapply it. He says, do not judge. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean we're not supposed to differentiate between right and wrong as if everything were, were equal? There, there was no, there's no real difference? Now, it can't mean that. Because there is a difference between right and wrong. There's a difference between feeding a hungry child and sexually abusing that child. They are not equal. One is right and one is very wrong. Well, then does it mean that we're never to go to someone else and talk to them when they're doing something that's wrong? Would that be judging? Well, no, I can't mean that because Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 18 
that we are to love each other that much, that we'll go to our brother and sister in Christ when when they're caught in some sin and talk to them, gently try to help them understand and see. And in Galatians 6, we're told to love each other that much, to go and do this for each other. Well, then what does it mean? What can it mean? Well, again, I think that's best answered in context. This is all about how we act like our Father. We act like God. Does God distinguish between right and wrong? Absolutely. Does God love us enough to tell us the difference? Absolutely. That's what we have in Scripture. But is God uptight, critical, watching everything we do, looking for us to mess up, finding fault with everything we do? Absolutely not. He loves us. He enjoys us. He, he, sure, everything we do has fault. We don't do anything as well as it can be done, as well as He could do it. But He's loving. He is relaxed. He, 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 he's comfortable with us. He enjoys us. He corrects us. He guides us. But He's not uptight. He's not critical. See, and that's what He wants for us. To learn to relax and enjoy. To look like Him. I remember one time some folks in church that I was in growing up were openly critical of my parents for letting me play football when I was in junior high. They just thought it was horrible. I can remember how I felt about these people. I just thought they were ugly. They just, they just felt bad. They just were unhappy, small people. Now, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have had back surgery last month if I hadn't played football in junior high. And uh, these people were perfectly right not to allow their son or daughter to play football if, if, if they felt it unwise or, or unhealthy. But when we begin to look down on each other for the different decisions that we make, that's wrong, that's judging. Now, football may not be your hot button, but, but maybe television what shows you watch or what shows you let your children watch or how much television or whether you even have a television in your house or how about holidays do you celebrate christmas do you get a christmas tree do you let your kids believe in santa do you celebrate halloween and these things start to touch some emotion in us how about do you dance do you go into bars do uh, you believe that red meat is the root of all evil do uh, how much of your income do you give to the church? Where do you minister? See, these are all real questions that we all are trying to answer as we try to glorify God in the details of our life. These are questions we should be able to talk about and, and to grow in our understanding about and to learn from each other. But to accept each other in the midst and, and to, to, to really trust that each of us is seeking with our own information and our own experience and our own relationship with God to understand how to glorify Him. You see, a sour, critical spirit doesn't look anything like God. It sure doesn't look like Jesus. Now, there are some things that God has felt it important enough to tell us clearly in Scripture are wrong or are right. And when somebody violates those... They are wrong, plain and simple. Now, that's not judging. God has already judged. God has already spoken. It's not us speaking on our own authority. It's merely listening 
openly to God. But even in those situations where someone is sinning, we don't condemn them. We come alongside them gently, lovingly, and try to encourage them back to the truth. And and when we are harmed, when we are, are offended, when we are wronged in that process, we forgive. We don't look down on them. We don't feel superior. We recognize, like Paul says, that, that uh, we could be there, that we are not as strong as we often think we are. We gently, lovingly come alongside of them. We act like God does, gentle and respectful. And God is a giver, we are told in these verses. See, He loves to give. That's the way He is. He's not like these grumpy, stingy pagan idols that have to be coerced and manipulated into giving people things. God loves to give. That's what he's like. We don't have to try to motivate him. But you see, his giving to us is governed, is regulated by his love, by what's good for us, because he really loves us. And what he's looking for from us is to live in such a way that frees him to give. What he's looking for in us is to be like him, to love to give more than we love to receive, to delight in giving to others. Then he can give to us and through us. Then we can share with him the enjoyment of giving as we become his avenues, his partners in that process. In that process, we enjoy him and we enjoy with him the delight of giving. You can't ultimately outgive God. Now this is not again a magic formula that if you give so mount, so much God's going to have to give to you. It doesn't work that way. This isn't karma. This isn't like uh, when I was younger we used to have a saying, what well, goes around comes around. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about that quote principle of life. We're talking about what God is like. And really understanding His desire to give. And if you're going through a time right now where you feel like you're not being given something that you really need, first of all, know that it's not necessarily because you're doing something wrong. But know even more clearly that it's not because God is stingy or perverse. What it means is that there's a reason that is important enough for God to restrain Himself to restrain his delight in giving. And the last words that uh, that Jesus used, where it says, "For pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into your lap." That poured into your lap literally means given to your breast. Now, what the picture here is: in those days, everyone wore robes or tunics. And if you had a bunch of stuff you wanted to carry, you'd pull your robe up so the bottom of it was cinched by your belt. And that made this big, kind of big pocket thing. You could stuff stuff in it and carry it. And what Jesus is talking about is God gives so much that this thing is stuffed full, overflowing, and and you're waddling home trying to carry all this stuff, laughing while you're leaving this trail behind. That's the picture Jesus wants to give of, of God's giving, of God's enjoyment of giving. Then we're told that Jesus told them a parable. Actually, he told them quite a few parables. But we'll look at each one. Again, they all string together. They all have to do with how we respond to the things that Jesus says. Look at verse 39. 
They also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. That's basically actually two real short parables, two short sayings. Now here's an experiment you can do at home with your children, your spouse, your roommate. Blindfold one of you, rearrange the furniture, and then lead the one without the blindfold, lead the other one through. Then do the same experiment, blindfolding both of you. You end up tripping, falling all over each other. It can be fun, it can be funny as long as it's a game. Now do it outside next to some real high cliffs. And it stops being quite as fun. See, in real life, we can get real hurt. There are real dangers out there. There are unseen realities that we just cannot see with our own eyes. And these unseen realities determine the quality of our relationships. They affect our futures profoundly. They, they, they are the difference between contentment and confusion. And there are a lot of people out there willing to be your guide. Just dial the 900 number and your first psychic reading is free. The other day I was watching a, a public television show on the origins of man, and the expert they were interviewing was one of my college professors at the University of California. And uh, I, I, the reason I was watching it was because I knew he was on it, and I wanted to see him again. And here he was, pontificating about the beauty and the, the wisdom and the, the skill of evolution. And it just sounded so nice and wonderful. But I remember sitting in his class, seeing this very unhappy man railing against Christianity and religion. And here he was on television, offering to lead anyone who would follow. But they're headed for a pit. Now, like I said, there's no shortage of people out there willing to lead you. People in the media, people in recording studios, people in uh, philosophy classrooms, people in counseling offices, people in churches. They're all blind. Let Let me let you in on another secret. Here I am, up here teaching you, and I am blind. See, we all are. The only one who is sighted is Jesus. See, my job is to listen to Him as He describes reality and to picture it in my mind and then try to describe it to you. How do you know if I'm accurate? Well, the only way you can know is if He's leading you as well. If you're listening to Him, spending time in His Word, studying His Word, and laying what I say next to what He said. See, He is the one, the only one that that can lead us. He is the only one who sees we are all blind. We cannot see for ourselves that it's that we're better off if we're poor. We cannot see for ourselves that, that the way to find life is to die. We can't see for ourselves that, that it's best to love those who are mistreating us. All of these things, somebody who can see it has to tell us because we can't see it ourselves. But what fools we are when we listen to ourselves or to some other human who's just as blind as we are, rather than listening to the one who can see. And the teacher that we all want to be like is definitely not me. 
It's not any human teacher. The teacher that we want to be like is Jesus Christ. Let Him train you. Let Him train you to listen to what He says above what you feel and what you think. See, that's what it all boils down to. And He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let me uh, point out right at the start. It is a gracious thing, a kind thing, to help somebody get a speck out of their eye. It hurts to have something in your eye. It can do damage in there. It disrupts your life. When you have something in your eye, you can't do much of anything else but get it out. You can't even open your eye. In fact, where it says the term that's used at the end of these verses to see clearly literally means to be able to open your eye. It's a good thing to help somebody get something out of their eye. But when you come up to them and say, Hey, brother, let me help you get that out of your eye, and you've got this big thing sticking out of your eye, they're going to say, yeah, right. He or she would be a fool to let you go poking around there with this big thing sticking out of your eye. The other day, one of my daughters was being irritable and mean to the other daughter as we were getting ready for school, as they were getting ready for school. I was getting ready for work. And I told her to stop it several times. Finally, she said one more mean thing, and I exploded. I screamed at her, and I physically forced her back into her room. Well, later that afternoon after school, we talked, and she told me what she was feeling, some physical pain she was in, some, some real fear about some things that were happening at school. And I told her she needed to write a letter to her sister and to apologize and to explain what was going on, what she had been feeling. About that time, I was feeling pretty good about my parenting skills. And then the plank in my own eye started to sting. And I realized that I needed to write her a letter and to ask her forgiveness for my my explosive anger and my physical intimidation. I needed to explain to her that my back was hurting and, and that I had allowed myself to become anxious about going back to work, that I wasn't listening to God's calm quiet voice. And the reason that I couldn't help her that morning was that I had a huge plank hanging out of my own eye. The reason that that my commands to just knock it off weren't effective was that I was walking around with a plank in my own eye. You see, our goal, our desire is to help each other listen to what Jesus has to say, to help each other hold on to it, to believe it. But when we've got Something in our eye. When we don't listen ourselves, we make it very hard, almost impossible for others to let us help them. Their their sense of justice is offended. They're unable to trust that we won't just use it to kind of win the control power games. You see, unless we break through this, unless we start getting honest with ourselves, we'll all just stumble around holding our eyes, falling into pits. The key here is to start being honest with ourselves and with each other. 
That's what the next uh, parable is about. Verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Now this parable is really about being honest with ourselves inside. Having some internal honesty. And it's very clear that basically what it's saying is if there's bad stuff coming out of your mouth, there's something wrong with your heart. Face it. It's that simple. You don't pick grapes off a thorn bush. If there are thorns on it, you say, aha, it's a thorn bush. If there are grapes on it, you say, aha, it's a grapevine. It's that clear. You know, face it. If there's bad stuff coming out of your mouth, there's something bad going on in your heart. That's one of the indexes God's given us so that we can wake up and see what's going on with us. You know, don't tell yourself that, that, that uh, you're okay if you're, if you're not loving your wife, if everything you're saying to her is critical, hurtful. You know, don't tell yourself that you're, you're cutting cynicism at, at work it's just because everybody else is so bad. Don't tell yourself that you're just sharing when what you're doing is gossiping and spreading hurtful information about other people. See, this is bad fruit. And if there's bad fruit coming out, there's something wrong with the tree. If there's bad fruit coming out, there's something wrong with your heart. Face it. Stop faking it. Now, unfortunately, we learn very early in life how to fake it. All right, in elementary school, we learn to pretend like we know more about forbidden subjects than we actually do. We pretend like we understand jokes that we don't understand. And we just kind of take that faking it on through, through our lives. I had a friend who uh, faked a resume so she could get a job with a, a pharmaceutical company. And she worked there for five years without a clue what was going on. She faked it. I had a, a, a medical doctor friend of mine who told me he spent most of his life faking it. I don't mean to scare you. <laughs> but I'm afraid that's not all that uncommon. Businessmen fake like they know how to do what the boss has just told them to do. College students fake like they know what's going on in this philosophy discussion. Now, I fake like I know how to run a church. <laughs> but when it comes to the heart, the issues of the heart, it is too expensive to fake it. See, we've got to, there, we've got to lay aside our training and be honest. We've got to be honest about what's going on inside of us, about our needs, because our words will eventually betray us. You can't ultimately fake it. When my heart is empty and in pain, the things that come out of my mouth hurt and empty others. But if I'm honest and I admit my needs, if I admit my hurt and my emptiness and bring it before the Lord. See, this isn't weakness. This is not being a wimp. This is what depending on Jesus Christ is all about. Bringing that heartache to Him and laying it before Him and saying, I don't know what to do about this. I am so frustrated. I'm so confused. And letting Him love us. Letting Him fill us up. Letting Him give us His peace and His joy. Then what comes out of our mouths gives peace. Peace. 
and joy. You see, that's, that's God's design. We all honestly face what's going on inside. We bring it to Him, let Him love us up. Then what comes out is healthy, beneficial. The fruit is good because what Jesus has done is put His life in there and the heart is good. That leads to our, our final parable, one that I think summarizes it all. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Every time I uh, read and think a lot about this story, I'm reminded of the story of the three little pigs. Now, here are three little pigs. They each built a house. Two of them really didn't pay attention. They really didn't take the time and the effort to do it right, to do it in a healthy way. The wolf came, and he ate them. It's different than the Walt Disney version. It's the the real version. He ate them. (laughs) But the other pig... His house stood. Well, that's the same same kind of picture here. You've got two people building a house. And, and, and in this case, in the parable, those houses may look identical. You can't tell the difference. You think both of those are beautiful houses. But one of them doesn't have a foundation. And when the flood comes, one of them goes down. You see, the, the idea is the same. When the wolf comes, when the flood comes, is your house going to stand? That's what it's about. That's the question. And wolves and floods will come. It's part of our human experience. It will come to every one of our lives. Being a Christian does not insulate us from disaster. In fact, sometimes I think it attracts it. Sometimes it feels like we're going through more than the rest of society. The issue is, the reality is, the wolves and the floods do come. And does your house, is it built well enough? Does it have a foundation that it can last? I do a lot of funerals. And and, and let me say as a precaution, I don't ever want to give the implication that uh, there's a... that that, that, that people should fake it in the midst of grief or that that I am in any position to to judge how somebody responds to, to horrible loss. But let me tell you two situations. Both situations, a baby died. Both of these situations, the uh, parents were absolutely devastated. uh, There was no real difference between the extent and the trauma of the grief between the two. But in one situation, the parents were inconsolable. They, they were, they would push anyone who tried to love them away. They turned in anger on God. They eventually turned in anger on each other. Their marriage crumbled. Their lives crumbled. The other situation, there was a lot of pain, but this couple clung desperately to the truth that their little one was now with Jesus, that God is good. 
And they, uh, they, they, they held to the truth. They went through every bit as much pain and loss and devastation, emotional trauma. But there was a, a sweetness and a strength there that was built long before this tragedy. See, their foundation held. It didn't crumble. You know, what is the difference? See, both of these folks were involved in the church I was in at the time. Both of these uh, claimed to be believers. Both of them suffered unimaginable loss. What was the difference? Well, the way Jesus describes it is that the one who has a strong foundation is the one who comes to him, who listens to him, and who puts what he says into practice, who does it. The one with the uh, weak foundation, the foundation that crumbles, is the one who comes to him, who listens to him, but never puts it into practice. You see, the difference is the doing. That's the difference. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we really have to decide whether we believe this stuff when it comes down to doing it. So that's where faith comes in. And that's what we're talking about. Without faith, it's impossible to obey. And when Jesus says, love those who spitefully use you, and your husband or your wife has just said something insensitive, do you believe Jesus enough to stop, to go, and to lovingly tell them that it hurt? To gently explain why it hurt? When Jesus says to love your wives to the point of giving your life for her, do you believe him enough to, to make her that important in your life rather than taking her for granted? When Jesus says it's better to give than to receive, do you believe it enough to actually write a check to meet that need that God has placed on your heart? When Jesus says that the only legitimate reason for divorce is is uh, abandonment or unfaithfulness. Do you believe him enough to stay in that hard marriage and to make some very difficult, painful decisions to seek to move that toward health rather than just getting out? When Jesus says that the way you find your life is to lose it, do you believe it enough to deny your desires for comfort, for recreation, to give to those in need, whether it's your family or outside of it? When Jesus says in his word that seeking his kingdom and his righteousness is, the, is what should be our act, or the focus of our activities on this earth, do you believe that enough to keep your work from dominating your heart and your time so that you have something to invest in pursuing God and pursuing relationships. I ask these questions not to condemn, not to make you feel guilty. I ask these questions because this is what Jesus is talking about. Do you believe Him enough to obey? If you don't trust Him enough to obey Him, then you're setting yourself up for collapse. Most of us are smart enough to prepare for financial contingencies with investments and insurance, but are you wise enough to invest spiritually, to lay a strong foundation in your life and in your marriage and in your family. You see, Jesus loves you. He doesn't want you to be destroyed. 
He wants you to experience peace, security, contentment. He gives us His Word so that we can understand the unseen realities, so that we can have the truth and live the truth and have a firm foundation. He doesn't tell us this stuff to be a burden, to, to, to force us to live like we don't want to live. He gives us the truth because it's only by living the truth that we can live lives that are solid, that are strong enough for the floods and for the wolves. And it's maddening to him for us to call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he says. To just keep setting ourselves up to be crushed and to hurt other people. But let me encourage you all. I know how hard this is when it comes right down to it. Trusting Him enough to obey Him is impossible without His life in us, without His Spirit filling us. And if you find yourself unable to really trust Him that much, let me encourage you right now just to stop. To admit that. To be honest with yourself. To be honest with Him. Confess your lack of trust. Ask Him to forgive it. And ask Him to fill you with His Spirit, His wisdom. And then boldly step out and obey. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey.